the first 17 verses. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden parts thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. Sometimes we speak very glibly of people who change the course of history. And a few men can it be said with any degree of certainty that they really did change the whole course of history. But I think without any question at all, we could say that Jesus Christ did change the course of all of human history. We could say even that a man by the name of Karl Marx changed the course of human history. And if we look back over the past 451 years, we need have no qualms about saying that a certain man by the name of Martin Luther changed the course of human history. In 1960 alone, there were over 600 articles and books printed on Martin Luther. Martin Luther wrote over 100 volumes in his lifetime. Martin Luther made history wholesale. And the reason that he did is that God touched his life with a tremendously personal experience with Jesus Christ, and that launched a movement that is spread to the ends of the earth and of which there are literally hundreds of millions of people who can claim to have known Jesus Christ as a result of this one man, Martin Luther. He was born in 1483, before Columbus ever discovered America. 
In 1505, he was a student of law. He had taken a master's degree in law at the University of Erfurt in Germany. On a hot, sultry day in July of that year in a thunderstorm, a bolt of lightning struck near where Luther was, and he fell to the ground and screamed to the patron saint of his father, Saint Anna, Saint Anna, save me, and I'll become a monk. Two weeks after he said that, he entered an Augustinian monastery, and he became a monk. Like St. Matthew, he gave a feast for his friends and invited them to it. He gave to them one by one his law books and his coats and his worldly possessions and explained to them that he was going to find God and to give his life to God's service. Martin Luther wanted God. He wanted the forgiveness of his sins tremendously, he hungered and thirsted after righteousness. The prayers of David were those which literally waked up Luther, for he did not find in the fasting in the monastery, he did not find in his vows of poverty and chastity, he did not find in all of the relics of the saints any release from the guilt that flooded his soul. No, he could not find it in them. In 1510, he was sent to Rome, when he went to Rome and venerated the relics that were there, hoping by means of this pilgrimage to achieve some sense of the forgiveness of sins, it was a dead thing for him. In fact, the church had grown so utterly corrupt that when this pious and sincere peasant from Germany vowed to say the Mass in Rome, he was nudged by monks who were there who said, get on with it, get over with it. Martin Luther came back from Rome disheartened. He would sometimes fast for three days at a time without eating one crumb of bread, one crumb of food. He would go without sleep in vigils of prayer. He would sometimes confess his sins for as long as six hours. And finally, through the kindness of one of his superiors in the monastery, he was instructed to pursue a doctor of Holy Scripture degree. That's what we need a lot of in the church today, a doctor of Holy Scripture. He started to read the Bible. A Bible had been given to him bound in red. He began to read the Bible and to study it. He began to learn from the Bible about God's dealings with men. And then he began a series of lectures in 1513 on the book of Psalms. And when Martin Luther got to the 22nd Psalm, and he saw those words of the psalmist, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Martin Luther cried out in his soul, That's me. I am forsaken by God. And then he remembered that these were the words that Jesus uttered when he was dying upon the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And something of the penetrating power of the atonement began to suffuse his soul as he understood that Jesus was forsaken on that cross because he was bearing the sins of Brother Martin Luther. And then when Martin Luther came to the 51st Psalm, which is our lesson for today, 
And he read that plea of David after he had gone into Bathsheba and had sinned with her. And a whole year had gone by. And he had violated those commandments of God. He had coveted his neighbor's wife. He had committed adultery. He had lied. He had murdered. And his soul was full of guilt. And then God sent him a word through a powerful preacher. A preacher who was very personal, but a preacher who was very clever, and a preacher who built a sermon and constructed it in such fashion that he had Nathan pulled, that he had David pulled up close to him when he finally said to him, Thou art the man, David. And Nathan the prophet was used of God to convict David of his sins. And this man was one at the same time, the greatest sinner and the greatest saint in the Bible, confessed, I have sinned against God. That's important. No person is so far from salvation as the person who thinks he has not sinned against God. But if you are a person who senses your sins and your need of God, then you're just ripe for a personal reformation and you're ripe for salvation and you're ripe for sainthood. A whole year had gone by before Nathan came in with his sermon that day to David. But once he had preached that sermon to David, King David confessed his sins and he went to the temple, to, he went to pray. And when he went to the place of prayer with sackcloth, and with ashes, this king uttered one of the most moving prayers for forgiveness that has ever been spoken by any lips and all of the history of the world. God the Holy Spirit moved through David that day in his prayer. I myself have brought people to this psalm when they have come to my study with a sordid tale of infidelity and with a great need of the forgiveness of God. I have told them of David's sin in Nathan's sermon. And then I have said, would you like to pray the prayer that David prayed? Listen to it. Have mercy upon me, O God. Why? Because I give money to the church. Have mercy upon me, O God. Because I've done this or done that or because I deserve it. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According to thy tender mercy, blot out all my transgressions. His plea is for the grace of God. And when Martin Luther read that psalm, he thought, surely, this is like Paul. This is like Paul in the seventh chapter of Romans, crying out to be delivered from his sin. And Martin Luther read on, and he thirsted to be cleansed and forgiven. He confessed it. He wanted truth in the inward parts. He wanted God to wash him so that he would be whiter than snow. He wanted the joy and gladness in his heart that comes from peace with God, just as David wanted it. He wanted God no longer to hide his face from him. He wanted God not to take his Holy Spirit from him. He wanted the joy 
of salvation. Do you have the joy of salvation? Do you really? The joy of peace with God? Do you really? And if you do not, why do you not have it? Is it of little concern to you? Are our church activities some substitute for this? I wonder. I wonder. The great slogans of the Reformation are slogans that point up what happened to David and what happened to Martin Luther. The great slogan of the Reformation is that we are saved by grace alone. And that's what David said. David was king. He was wealthy. If David had wanted to, he could have ordered 10,000 sheep to have been slain and 10,000 bullocks and barrels of olive oil to be poured at an altar. But he knew that that would not cleanse him from his sin, all of that sacrifice. He knew that the sacrifice God wanted of him was a broken and a contrite heart and that God would not despise that. And he knew that it would have to come out of unmerited love from God to him. And he appropriated it by faith alone. He believed that God would put away his sins and God did put away his sins. And if God could put away those heinous sins of David, God can put away our sins too and deal with us. There are people today who say, oh well, Martin Luther was 451 years ago. David was even farther back than that. He was 2,500 years ago or 2,800 years ago. What does this have to do with us today? We have great social problems. So what? Our social problems are but expansions of our own personal problems. You find any great movement of history and you'll find some individual who got moved first. That's what happened with Martin Luther. We are so busy about the problems of society. And our church has produced not theologians, but sociologists. We're going to heal the problems of the world through the ways of the world and not deal with matters of personal salvation. We study the problems of man instead of looking at man as the problem. Not long ago, I was reading a story about a man who was in a supermarket and he was pushing one of these carts trying to shop and he had his little boy in there and the little boy was pushing over displays and he was grabbing at fruit and he was creating a great nuisance. And this man was saying in a very calm and restrained voice, he was saying, be calm, Albert, be patient, Albert. Don't lose your cool, Albert. Don't create a scene, Albert. And when he got to the cash register, uh, the lady there said, you know, I've been hearing what you've been saying to that little boy, and I really admire your restraint. And the man said, lady, you don't understand. I'm Albert. <laughs> uh, we are the problem. We are the ones who need the help. Uh, we need it desperately, and how are we to get it? We need deliverance from our sins, and it comes by grace alone, and it comes by faith alone. That's what God wants from us. The root of all heresy I've said again and again and again and again is works, that I'm going to be saved because of the things I do. 
And this is where heresy comes from. It's not willing to accept what God has already done for us in Jesus Christ. This is why so many people can talk so glibly about the church and so little about Jesus. You ever stop to, is it easier for you to talk about the church or to talk about Jesus? Is it easier for you to say, I belong to the church or I belong to Jesus? Which is easier? Why? What's the reason? I'll tell you why. We don't want his personal lordship. When Martin Luther was debating Erasmus, who was a towering intellect, he said to Erasmus, he said, church, 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 church. That's all you can say, Erasmus, is church. And then he said, Erasmus, tell me, what is the church? And then he went back into a time in history when the church was glutted with all manners of, manner of heresy in which the five orthodox bishops of the church were all in exile at one time. And he said to Erasmus, tell me, Erasmus, where was the church then? Was the church with those who were persecuted for their faithfulness to the word of God and to the deity of Christ? Or was the church where the authority and the money and the power and the influence were? And he went further with Erasmus. He said, Erasmus, you may not know where the church is, but a little seven-year-old child can know where the church is. The church is like where Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them by name, and I call them by name, and they follow me. And said Martin Luther, that's the church. It's a fellowship of believers. A fellowship of believers. I have been so pleased with some tremendous things that are taking place in the Roman Catholic Church. Up at the University of Michigan, the Roman Catholic Student Center, the Newman House there, has in its rack InterVarsity Christian Fellowship booklets. There are some Presbyterian churches that will get you if you put them out. But there's InterVarsity. They work with young life. They work with Campus Crusade. I saw this myself in India. Something is happening because these people are reading the Bible. They are saying, take today's Bible in modern English, that little today's English version put out by the American Bible Society, and many of the bishops and priests are saying, read it. Robert Evans, who is uh, the director of the a greater European mission in France, says that he has a Bible study, he participates in a Bible study with some Roman Catholic priests, and he said, I cannot tell one bit of difference between their experience of the new birth and conversion to Jesus Christ and mine. If you want to read something inspiring, pick up a copy of, of this month's Eternity magazine. Here is a sermon that I could very well preach, and I probably will if I can learn it. Uh, it's called How to Be Free. You know who wrote it? Father William Tuey, the assistant professor of theology at Notre Dame. And I'll tell you right now, I'm with the father a lot more than I am with a great many guys in our seminary because of what he says in here. 
You won't believe how good it is. Listen to this. You know what he says? Many of us have probably snickered as we passed by the country road sign that states glibly, Jesus saves. We kind of smile to ourselves at the simple fundamentalist faith that put up the sign. Yet this is the gospel message. Jesus alone will save us. Boy, I'd like to hear some Presbyterian theologians saying that. Jesus alone will save us. That's what Father Tui at Notre Dame says. This is what we need in a personal reformation that gets inside and changes individuals and moves them. Grace alone, faith alone, through scripture alone. That's why the Roman Catholic Church is being rejuvenated right now. This is happening all over the Protestant Church in many areas. There are neighborhood Bible societies that are being formed in their People who are having Bible groups meet in their homes and they're studying the scriptures. And where they do this, God does tremendous things. He will honor his word just as he honored it through Martin Luther as he was faithful to the word of God. You must remember that Martin Luther had very much in his mind what happened to those in Spain. He knew what happened to heretics. He knew that he could be burned at the stake. He knew that he could be arrested and rot away in some prison in Rome. And yet Martin Luther, once the glorious light of the gospel shone on him, after he had lectured from the Psalms and saw what a personal faith was, after he had lectured from Galatians and Romans, Then there was no stopping Martin Luther. When he went to nail his 95 theses to the door of the castle church at Wittenberg on October the 31st, 1517, the people didn't even show up to debate it. But look what happened. What tremendous events transpired as a result of that. Grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, by Christ alone. What about it with you? Is Christ where he ought to be in your heart? Or do you substitute an idolatry of the church? Or an idolatry of good works? Or an idolatry of your social status or your intellectual prowess? The one utterly essential to salvation is humility. When David said in humility, I have sinned against God, Nathan said, with the authority of God, and God hath put away your sin. This is a message we need to hear. We need to hear it over and over so that our faith will be personal. Nearly a hundred years after Martin Luther, a little over a hundred years after Martin Luther, we began to see lay people as they work out their personal faith. And one who has utterly fascinated me is John Bunyan, the mender of pots and pans and skillets, the tinker, who went around with a big pack on his back carrying his tools and who knew how good it felt to unloose this pack and put it down and stretch. 
and whose blasphemies and whose swearing and whose evil and vile language was so great that people shuddered when he came about. And one day John Bunyan heard two simple women talking about a personal faith in Jesus as their Savior. And Bunyan said that was the beginning of the light dawning upon his soul. And finally he came to the place where the burden of his sin, which he had been bearing, were all rolled away and where he could know the joy of salvation through Jesus Christ. And that Bunyan who was told that he could not preach the gospel because he didn't have the blessings of the established church and who put 12 years in prison, told the bailiffs who came to him in prison when they said that he must stop his preaching, that he would sit in the prison in the Bedford jail until the moss grew over his eyebrows before he would cease preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what a personal reformation does. It's a matter of my own yielding to God, the putting away of my own sins. I talk with people all the time who are burdened with sins. They are burdened with sins. They, they cannot keep them submerged. And one of my best pals is a psychiatrist, and he tells me of how these people are like someone in a, in a swimming pool who has five or six big basketballs that are floating around on the surface of the water. And they try to keep them all submerged and pushed down. But one will surface here and one will surface there, and they try to submerge them. And the answer to their guilt is grace. The answer to their guilt is what Luther found in grace alone, faith alone, revealed through scripture alone is his authority and accomplished by Christ alone. This is the gospel message. This is the message that changes lives and changes hearts and changes homes too. That same Martin Luther who could write a hundred books that same Martin Luther who still gets his picture on the cover of Time magazine 450 years after he's dead. That same Martin Luther was the one who could sit by the bedside of one of his children who was sick and nurse him to health. That same Martin Luther could potter around the house fixing clocks when he was an older man. When he died at 63 with a coronary thrombosis, the last letter that he wrote had in its last sentence, I wonder what God is going to do next. There was that expectancy and that grace that permeated his life. David found forgiveness. Martin Luther found forgiveness. And we too can find full and complete forgiveness in Christ. Luther wrote a magnificent little catechism it's called Luther's Small Catechism. He wrote it to teach children the way of salvation. This is what he says about the forgiveness of sins. Why do you say I believe in the forgiveness of sins? That's in the creed. The answer is the Bible assures me that God daily and richly forgives all sins to me and to all believers. 
How does God forgive your sins? God no longer charges or imputes my sins to me, but declares me righteous. What induces God to forgive your sins? God forgives my sins not because of my merit or worthiness, but because of his grace for Christ's sake. Where does God offer you the forgiveness of sins? God offers me the forgiveness of sins in the gospel. And here is the heart of the matter. How do you accept this forgiveness of sins? I accept this forgiveness of sins by believing the gospel. Why can and should every believer be certain of the forgiveness of his sins and of his salvation? Every believer can and should be certain of the forgiveness of his sins and of his salvation because God's promise is sure. Let us stand and pray. Blessed God, we thank thee that our sins, which are many, are all washed away. Our sins, not in part, but the whole. They are nailed to his cross, and they condemn us no more. And we can say, all is well with my soul. We thank thee for that peace which you bring to those who trust in the certainty and the sureness of thy promises. Help us as a result of that faith to live lives of gratitude, lives that will show forth the kindness and goodness of the Lord Jesus day by day as the fruits and deeds and works of the Holy Spirit are manifest from lives that are made righteous in thy sight because of what Christ has done. If we have uncertainty about our forgiveness, Help us to look to thy servant David's prayer. Help us to look to thy servant Paul's plea and his great assurance that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk no more after the flesh, but who now walk after the Spirit. And help us to live in newness of life. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be and abide with you all, now and forevermore. Mm -hmm.